Turn with me to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 22. Pencils, pants, and planting churches. I am very particular about pencils. First, the easy things, a pencil should be a hexagon. It shouldn't be round and cylinder, away with those. Second, pencils should have a refillable square eraser and uh, a refillable square eraser because I'm going to erase about as much as I write and squared off is just better than round. Uh, finally, it should be quality cedar and then the graphite should be firm or ideally extra firm in order for it to be sharpened with a long point sharpener because soft graphite just shouldn't exist. Uh, you can imagine getting these pencils just the way I want them to my particular specs is a little bit difficult, but it's okay because I can order them directly to my door from Stockton, California, just the way I want them. Pants. I'm particular about pants, especially blue jeans. Uh, first, there's fit. The 90s are gone. I'm an adult, so we're not doing baggy anymore. Um, also, I do need the flexibility to like tie my shoes and stuff, so we're not doing too skinny. And I don't know what's up with stretchy jeans. I'm not doing yoga, so I don't need my jeans to stretch. Uh, I can get jeans just the way I want them, and I can get them shipped to my house directly from Canada, is my last pair of jeans came from Canada. I can get pencils and pants just the way I want them. Now let's talk about planting churches. When you tell people you're starting a new church, then a lot of things come to their mind about what that should look like. We have this picture of what the perfect church would be, and maybe this church will be just that dream church. I know that people do that because one, they tell me, and two, I do it too. So I can tell you a little bit about Tyler's dream church, okay? Start with the music. Can't have my dream church without my music, okay? So alt-country it is. If you don't know what that is, it's because there's only like five of us that listen to it. So lap steel guitar, just the right amount of drums, a mandolin, a piano player that's there for the one slow song that we're going to do because that's all we're doing in Tyler's Dreams Church is one slow song. Uh, my dream church starts at 11 because 10 a.m. is too early and I've got three kids that can't find their shoes. The pastor at my dream church is just the right amount of expositional, but he's witty and funny, and he like drops references to art and literature and philosophy. If you haven't figured out yet, you now know I'm not talking about Antioch when I'm talking about my dream church there. So uh, after services, we would do like fellowships every week because it's easier to feed the family, and uh, I think a church should do that kind of thing. They should do community and fellowships, and um, that would, but I, here's the thing. At my dream church, because I'm kind of introverted, I wouldn't actually have to go. I wouldn't feel like the guilt to go do that, but like, uh, it would happen, though. That's my, what my dream church would do. Um, and then small groups, like they would come around at just the right time. Some of you know what I'm talking about. They would come around at just the right pace, because weekly, sometimes I just don't want to go, right? Sometimes we don't want to go to base group. It's okay to admit that. Um, but the, at my dream church, they would come around at just like the right rhythm, somehow attuned to, I always want to go, and there's always great, deep relationships. Okay, that's all ridiculous, right? That's all just super ridiculous. When we're talking about something like pencils, fine, have it your way. 
When you're talking about pants, then yeah, get it just the way you want it. But when we're talking about the church, we have to move past consumeristic preferences and use a different rubric. In his book, Uncomfortable, Brett McCracken writes this. He says, consumerism is about unlimited choice and unlimited speed. We choose exactly what we want, take only what we want from it, and move on. This mindset has infiltrated the way we approach church as a thing we can design according to our checklist of preferences. And if a church stops catering to our desires or makes us uncomfortable, we move on. There are dozens of other options in town. Consumerism is chronic dissatisfaction. We're always on the quest for more and better, hoping for new heights of satisfaction. The dream church is always a potential out there. The grass is always greener at the trendy new church in town. Elsewhere, he goes on, what we think we want from a church is almost never what we need. However challenging it may be to embrace, God's idea of church is far more glorious than any dream church we could conjure. In our passage this evening, I want to look at three things about the church's very identity that must mark who we are at Antioch. And by implication, I want to contend that if we can focus on these central, biblical, important things, then all manner of secondary and tertiary issues should just fall out of view because the weightier things about who the church is matters more. So as we read 1 Peter 1, 22, starting in 1 Peter 1, 22, observe these three things. The church is saved by the grace of God into a countercultural family for the sake of his mission. Let's read. It says, having purified your souls by your obedience to the truth for a sincere brotherly love, love one another earnestly from a pure heart, since you have been born again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and abiding word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like the flower of grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word is the good news that was preached to you. So put away all malice and all deceit and hypocrisy and envy and all slander. Like newborn infants, long for the pure spiritual milk that by it you may grow up into salvation, if indeed you have tasted that the Lord is good. As you come to him, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. For it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone, chosen and precious, and whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe, but for those who do not believe, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone and a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. They stumble because they disobeyed the word as they were destined to do. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. Beloved, I urge you as sojourners and exiles to abstain from the passions of the flesh, which wage war against your soul. 
Keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. God, help us to hear from your word now. Lord, we come before you and we want your agenda, not our own. Father, we want your wisdom. We don't want to undertake this with our own wisdom. Father, we confess that this is your church. It's not ours. It's not mine. It's not ours. And Father, we want to see your kingdom grow, not our little kingdom. And so, Father, I pray that you would spur us toward that end even now. pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. The church is saved. We picked up chapter one partway through, and as we pick it up, Peter's already like midway through his flow of thought. Earlier in the chapter, Peter has been extolling the glorious good news of the gospel in, in what might be my favorite passage in all of scripture, one, three through nine. Uh, he's been unpacking the gospel message. And as we get into this, he's already partway through that thought. So you can see in the transition to our text this morning in verse 22, he says that he's talking to people who have purified their souls for, by their obedience to the truth. Then explained further down, he says that these are people that, he says, since you have been born again. And then Born again by an imperishable seed, which is, this is where he says, this is what the imperishable seed is. It's the good news that was preached to you. Later on, we see that he's talking to people whose worship is acceptable through Jesus Christ. And we're talking about those who believe. So when we're talking about the church, we're talking about a people who have already experienced new birth in Christ. Those who have already been made new and trusted in the gospel message to save them. So the church is saved. The church is made up of Christians. Great. Thank you. Thank you, Pastor. Uh, Why point this out? Because listen, this matters a great deal. It's not exactly popular but it is important. There's an inside and an outside to the family of God. There are those who are living stones being built up as a spiritual house, those who are a holy priesthood, those who believe, and then there are those, according to our passage, who do not believe, that they are still in darkness because they haven't yet trusted in Christ. And that distinction needs to be made clear because it's wildly, ferociously unloving for us to let someone believe that they've been made right with God if they haven't. It's a misunderstanding that is common, I think, in our specific context. It's a misunderstanding of what the church is and ultimately what the gospel is. You hear it when someone says, I need to get back in church. And what they mean is like, it would help me be more good, right? Like, I just need to get back in church. It would keep me on the straight line. Look, I'm a pastor. I agree that you need to get back in church. 
but it's not attendance that is going to make people more good. People need far more than that. They need the Spirit of God to make them into a new person. They need to turn from living as their own ruler and surrender to living under God's good and gracious reign. People need to trust in the cross of Christ and be transformed by his grace. So yes, come. Come back to church. But, but not so by osmosis. Church will keep someone on the straight line. They need to come so that the truth of God's word might chip away and chip away until they surrender their life to Jesus and he makes them new. And then they need to keep coming so that the truth of God's word and the fellowship of his people will even then continue to chip away and chip away, conforming us more to his image. Now, let me clarify what I'm not saying. When I say that there's an inside to the family of God and an outside, I'm not saying that you have to be inside the family to participate in what the church is doing. No, no, no. By God's sovereign hand and by your our bold, faithful witness, I hope and pray that the ministries of Antioch Church will be filled with those who are not yet believers. I pray that our Sunday morning gatherings are filled every week with people who haven't yet trusted in Christ. I hope these people find their way into our small groups and into our homes, into our dinner tables, into our living rooms. I hope by the Holy Spirit's wooing, they find their way into our Bible studies because their interest is piqued and they want to know more. So the ministries of Antioch are open to those that are outside the family of God. If that's you this evening, if you've never been born again by the gospel, then know that you're welcome here. You might not be part of the family of God yet, but you are our honored guest. Pull up a chair, kick your feet up on our living room table, and know all the while there's an open invitation to join in God's family. All you have to do is trust in Jesus and surrender everything to him. The church is saved, and it's the church is saved by grace. One of the vibes I get when I tell people I'm starting a church I don't know how they say it to me, but they just give off this vibe is, uh, you're not going to be like one of those self-righteous, judgy churches, are you? And I'm like, well, yeah, that's exactly what we were going to set out to be, is one of those self-righteous, judgy churches. Um, I, I hope not. Like, I don't think anyone was like, that's what we want to be. Because when you behold the grace of the gospel, there's just no room for judgy self-righteousness, right? The church is saved by grace, and understanding grace should kick away any self-righteousness. Dipping back into chapter 1, verse 3, we see that it's according to his great mercy that he has caused us to be born again. In verse 19, we, we read that we were ransomed by the precious blood of Christ. 2.5, it's only through Jesus that our worship is acceptable to God. And in 2.10, we see that once you had not received mercy, but now we've received mercy. There's an inside and an outside to the family of God, and every one of us should marvel, marvel, marvel that God has adopted us into his family. Because he did so out of sheer Sovereign grace and nothing of our own doing. 
As we walk through the book of Ephesians starting August 13th, we'll be confronted with that over and over again. And may that message of grace put to death any perverse self-righteousness that remains in us. But also, listen, on the journey of being conformed into the image of Christ, sometimes we have to bear with one another's sin. And sometimes in the church, that means bearing with the self-righteousness of other brothers and sisters while beckoning them into the better gospel way. So you say, so I'm just supposed to bear with sin? Yes, bear with that sin, and we'll bear with yours too when it leaks out. Because we are a community of grace, and none of us have arrived yet. The church is saved. The church is saved by grace, and it's saved by grace that changes us. Again, dipping back before our passage, 1.14 and following tells us that as God's children, we need to seek to live like the Father. Here we see, in our passage, we see commands that flow out of that identity. We're told to love one another earnestly. We're told to put away malice and deceit, hypocrisy and envy. We're told to long for spiritual nourishment that we can grow in salvation. We're told to actually come out of darkness to abstain from the passions of the flesh, and to keep our conduct among outsiders honorable. Antioch, let us be a church that is ferociously committed to being changed by the gospel. Let us be a church that has tasted and seen that the Lord is good and thereby craves spending time with him in his word, both in personal times of worship and corporately when we come together as a church. Let us be a church committed to holiness that glorifies God. And let us also leave plenty of room for others who are still growing in that process and still being changed by the gospel. Church, I ask you, is there room in your base group for the person who isn't yet sound in their doctrine? Is there room in your base group, is there room in your life for the young believer still needing to put away some of sinful habits? Can you look past some of that in order to be able to help them grow in the gospel? I've said it before, it's not my line, so I can't take credit for it. I'll say it again, though. If Antioch Church doesn't have weak people, we are a weak church. Christ's church should be filled with people of all kinds of maturity levels because Christ's church should be continuously holding out the gospel to other people. The church is a people saved by the grace of God into a countercultural community. The church is to be a community that is close-knit, countercultural, and centered on Christ. That's enough alliteration to even make this Baptist blush. Close-knit, countercultural community centered on Christ. I'm going to be honest with you. That was a little bit of an accident. I didn't even try. Take a look, closer look at what 2, 4 through 5 with me. It says, As you come to him, a living stone, 
rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious, you yourselves, like living stones, are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood, to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. In Peter's metaphor, each individual stone is coming together as one structure, a spiritual house. And that word house here is pulling double duty to refer first metaphorically to a building, specifically referring metaphorically to the temple. And so in the building metaphor, Christ is the cornerstone, the first and most important stone by which all the other stones will be set. And then the rest of us, by our union with Christ, are the other stones added to make up that structure. And so we, the church corporately, the people, are now the temple of God where his presence dwells. We are the temple of God together, though. There's a we, a a community. Second, the word house is also referring to a family, like in the sense of household. We're being formed into a family, a community, and again, it's inescapably corporate. If you look down to 2.9, you see, but you're a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Note how all of those words used to describe the church are corporate. They're all nouns that denote a group. Then on 1 Peter 2.10, with allusion to Hosea, we read that we have been made into a people. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Again, it's corporate. It's not just your special little self that's been made a person of God, but we together have become the people of God. Peter's taking Old Testament language from Isaiah 43, Exodus 19, and from Hosea 2, and he is applying words said about Israel to the church because the church is the new Israel. Better put, it's the fulfillment of Israel. It's all that Israel was supposed to be. And for example, Exodus 19, 5 through 6. Just prior, this is just prior to Israel receiving the law, receiving the covenant. We read what God says to Israel. He says, Now therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. On this point, Benjamin Glad points out that while Exodus 19 is conditional, if If you do this, then this. If you obey the covenant and keep the covenant, 1 Peter 2 is a statement of reality. You are these things. Why? Because Christ has already met the condition for us, and we now, by our union with Jesus, get to walk out in the actual fulfillment of all that Israel pointed to. We are a chosen race a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. We are a new people, every bit as knitted together as Israel was in the Old Testament and more. 
united together as a collective with all of Christ's people around the globe, but expressed locally in local churches. We're the people of God together. So um, I'll say this, I'm pretty sure until you put me in a box in the other building back there, I'll say it over and over because it's just one of those areas where the scriptures cut against the grain of our individualistic culture. And when the Bible cuts against the grain of us, we can either accommodate to the culture or we can submit to the scriptures. The New Testament knows nothing of a just me and Jesus faith that isn't intimately connected with the local church. Those that follow Christ must be linked up with the body of Christ. You have to take a Sharpie to black out the majority of the New Testament to arrive at some kind of individualistic faith in Christ that's separated from Christ's community. Further, Christian, you shouldn't just be part of a community hanging around on the fringes. Your connection with the local church should be close-knit. You are the new temple of God. You are the new Israel. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Gee, that's great. I'll see you next Sunday. Do you see the disconnect in that? Antioch, let's make the church, the local church, family again. The church is so much more than just a service we attend as spectators. The church is so much more than just a box we check. The Bible calls us to be family to one another. It calls us to bear with one another. That means that we're going to spend enough time together that I actually have to bear with you. You're actually going to get on my nerves, and so I'm going to have to bear with you. The Bible calls us to bear one another's burdens That means that we're actually going to have to know what's going on in each other's life if I'm going to be able to bear your burdens, both practically and spiritually. Moreover, Hebrews 3 tells us that God's sovereign means of keeping us in the faith is the loving correction and spurring of other brothers and sisters. 3, 12 through 13. Take care, brothers, Lest there be in any of you an evil, unbelieving heart leading you to fall away from the living God. Take care that this doesn't happen. And here's how it won't. But exhort one another every day, as long as it is called today, that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Community is God's sovereign, ordained way of keeping us in the faith. Does anyone know you well enough to lovingly and graciously exhort you so that you won't be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin? Okay, you need more than Sunday mornings for that. This is one of the reasons that our membership covenant includes a commitment to join together with one of our small groups. Because our small groups, base groups, are the primary way we seek to have a depth of relationships, of, of relationships. But even if you've already connected with a base group, my encouragement to you is this, engage. Connect with people outside of just the base group meeting time. Meet up for dinner, grab a coffee, help someone with a house project, live as family. Get together so that there's more opportunity for iron to sharpen 
iron. Live interconnected lives of mutual support, even in a world that so often militates against that. The church is a community, it's close-knit, and it's countercultural. Countercultural. Look again to 2, 4 through 5. In these verses, Peter's picking up a theme he introduced in the opening of the epistle. There he called the believers, in verse in 1, 1, he says, to the church he's writing to, he says, you are elect exiles. Elect, which is a kind of a funny phrase, and I love it. Elect exiles. Elect, chosen. Exiles, cast out. Peter's writing to believers who have already begun experiencing persecution and will soon experience more, and he tells them that they are elect exiles, that they are those that are chosen by God, and even while they are rejected by the world. They're chosen by God, rejected by the world, because they follow Jesus, who was himself a living stone, rejected by men, but in the sight of God, chosen and precious. Jesus himself was not accepted by the world, and Jesus' church should expect no different. We live today with that same identity as elect exiles, never fully at home in this world as we long for another. So church, this means that we must be attuned to the reality that the raging current of our culture doesn't often carry us in the direction of the kingdom. The people of God, though, are called to go against the current, together pointing to a better kingdom. And listen, the call to live countercultural is not merely the call to tell the truth on moral issues. It is that, but it's not only that. The call to live countercultural also means so many other things. It's the call to abstain from sinful passions. It's the call to keep your conduct among outsiders honorable. It's the call to turn from living my life entirely focused on my personal kingdom, career, wealth, and to make his kingdom my highest aim. It's the call to turn from endless comfort seeking and to dive into the lives of people around me seeking to be priests who bring the kingdom of God to those outside. Christian community should be close-knit, countercultural, and finally and obviously centered on Christ. As much as I love Christian community, my favorite part of Christian community is Christ. It is Christ Jesus who is the cornerstone that holds it all together. The thing that unites us as a body is our union with Christ. Therefore, it's Christ that must remain central in our life together. That's what we share in common. So when we gather, sure, let's talk about the Braves. Sure, let's talk about life, even talk about work, but let's be sure that we talk about the one overarching, weighty commonality that brings us all together, and that's Christ Jesus, our King. And when we're tempted to think that we don't have much in common with another brother or sister, let us cast aside that broken lens and see through the pages of Scripture. Together we are elect exiles. Together we are living stones with Christ Jesus as the cornerstone. Together, once we had not received mercy, now we have received mercy. I think that's quite a bit in common. 
Lastly, the church is a people saved by the grace of God into a countercultural family for the sake of his mission. The goal, the telos, the aim of the church is that the glory of God would be rightfully shown off. Look at verse 9 again, chapter 2, verse 9. You are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Dropping down to verse 12, keep your conduct among the Gentiles honorable so that they may see your good deeds and glorify God on the day of visitation. The end game of our new little church is nothing less than God's glory resounding forth from our faith family out into the community, scattered into our neighborhoods and workplaces, and even going forth to the ends of the earth. Again, there's an inside and an outside to the people of God, but the inside has a mission to the outside. The inside people of God are to live distinct, holy, set apart, not so we can just cloister up in little communes scared of a decaying world out there, not so that we can just pat ourselves on the back for something that we didn't ourselves do. The inside people of God are to live set apart so that we might proclaim his excellencies to the outside non-believing world. And we do that both in our lives as we conduct ourselves as kingdom people bought by the blood of Christ, and we do it with our lips as we proclaim the gospel of the kingdom to those who have not yet been born again in Jesus. I said it in our first interest meeting. I said it in the info meeting. I'll say it again now. We're not starting a new local church in order to try to steal away the already found from other churches. Our doors are open if you haven't yet found a local church home, and our doors are open if you're leaving an unhealthy church, but that's not what we're planting for. We're not starting a new church in order just to be closer to home. We're thankful. That's not the aim. Antioch is planting so that as a fiercely local congregation, we can better hold out the good news of the gospel to those in our community. And so Antioch, folks, hear me. We all have a part to play in that. All of us. We all have a part to play in that, and this is not the first time you've heard this from me. How are we doing? Are you personally, in your own way, according to your own giftings and personality, according to the way that God has wired you, are you personally going with the gospel to outsiders? Because look, sometimes I think there's a tendency to do this. I think sometimes there's a call, we hear this call to go, and we're all excited about the gospel going forth, but we hear that and we nod and we amen, and inside we're like, yes, that's it, but then we go out from here and... I don't know, we're like waiting for others to do it? Brothers and sisters, we're now three weeks out from first Sunday. And I know for many of you, you've gone from attending church a long way away from home for a long time and like certain habits and routines form, right? Like I'm not going to invite my neighbor because I'm going to invite him 40 minutes down the road. Those kinds of habits and routines form. But three weeks out... 
If you haven't yet shifted gears in your mind, now's a good time to go ahead and do that. Extend an invite to an info meeting. Extend an invite to our first Sunday. Extend an invite to your dinner table. However it is for you, we need all hands on deck going with the gospel message because it's the greatest news on the planet. The church is a people saved by the grace of God into a countercultural community for the sake of his mission. As we set out on this journey together, may we keep that high, glorious, weighty call front and center in all that we do. Let's pray. Uh, Father God, we thank you for all the ways, God, that you've already provided for us as a church. Lord, we thank you for all the ways that you've moved in us. Uh, Lord, we thank you for all of the uh, ways that we've already had the opportunity to speak of your gospel in this community. And God, we pray that you would continue to uh, make these truths most important as we think about moving forward and planting the church. God, I pray that you would, by your grace, not by any wisdom or skill or whatever that we here at Antioch have, Lord, but by your grace, I pray that you would see fit to use us for your glory however you see fit. And so, Father, I pray that you would refine, chip away at each of us individually in ways that we, whatever ways we need to grow in you, Lord, that we might be a family that holds out your gospel, that grows together, and that takes care of one another. We pray that in Jesus' name. Amen.